All right. We have been in a sermon series called Failing Forward, and the idea is simple. You are going to make mistakes in life, and so am I. We're going we're to fail at times in all kinds of ways, big and small. When we fail, there's a critical question we need to ask ourselves. Does that make us a failure? Or can we learn from those failures? Can failure itself be kind of a stepping stone into the maturity that God wants for us? And we believe that the Bible strongly suggests that failure does not make you a failure because God used all kinds of people who made big mistakes. So each week we're looking at the life of Moses, one of the more prominent leaders in the scriptures. And even though he was used instrumentally to free a whole people group from enslavement, he messed up constantly. He was constantly tripping over himself, making bad decisions. He had a disobedience problem. He had an anger problem. He murdered a guy out of rage. And so each week we're looking at the type of failure Moses engaged in and how God actually failed Moses forward, advanced God's agenda and plan for Moses' life, not in spite of failure, but even through failure. God loves you so incredibly much that when you fail, he doesn't look at you with eyes of judgment and call you a failure. He looks at you with eyes of love and he says, what can we learn from this and how can we leverage this for the plans that I have for you and the redemptive plans for the entire world. So if you uh, have a Bible and you'd like to turn or a Bible on your smartphone, we are in Exodus and we will be looking at the failure of autonomy, as in going it alone, being a one-man show. That was Moses' issue early in life. I'll read from the NIV version on the screen. The Amalekites, have you ever heard of the Amalekites? The Amalekites came and they attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, we're in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. So the Israelites are going to the promised land. They've been freed from Egypt in this point of the story, and all of a sudden a local gang attacks them. Moses said to Joshua in response to this attack, one of his second or third in command, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur, kind of a bummer of a name, Hur, went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. I'm just going to go back here to the text, and I'm going to invite Ari, our worship pastor up here, and Galen uh, in the band. You're going to be so kind to help me. Thank you very much. We need to act this out, I think, because, you know, you read the Bible, and you kind of glance over this, but this is kind of a crazy story. And, and I, I'd love to have a visual. We don't have a staff, but Ari has a guitar. So he's going to have a guitar in his hands. He's going to play Moses. I'll take the bummer of a name. I'll be her. And uh, Galen, you can be uh, Aaron. Actually, we need uh, Joshua. Where's Terry Brenham? He was a Fulberg military colonel. Oh, oh okay. He's ushering. Well, he's, he's got the offering. That's good. Uh, is, there another, is there another Joshua? Luke Louie, you would have been a great military officer. Come on, come on, come on, Luke. 
You just have to stand here and, 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 and look soldierly. So, so here's, yeah, you just stand here because we're on the hill and you're actually doing all the fighting. So you can have a fighting pose, right? Um, here's how it worked. I mean, it's kind of a crazy story. You have us, like, around you. It doesn't say that you invited us up. We just came. We're your crew. And you're using this ordinary thing, this gift that God gave you in your hands. How fitting that it's a guitar for you. Uh, it was a shepherd's staff for Moses. And the deal was you're supposed to raise your hand, right? So raise your hand. That's a theme throughout Exodus. The Hebrew says, Pharaoh stretched out his hand against the people. And then God stretches out his hand against Pharaoh. And then God tells Moses, stretch out your hand. So you're stretching out your hand. But here's the thing. When I was in the army, they used to smoke us in, in basic training, drill sergeants, and push-ups were nothing compared to the arm raises. They would make you do this until you just wanted to cry, even the, 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 the best, strongest soldier. I mean, are you kind of feeling it a little bit? So here's, here's, here's kind of the visual where the visual is important. This is what we do. Aaron and I, right, Galen, you're Aaron. I'm her. We, like, notice you're struggling because we're close enough. And we get in here, but when you hold up a dude's arms, where is your head, right? And guess what they didn't have 3,000 years ago? So, like, you know, there was none of that. None of that. And, and it implies, like, we did this for a long time. I mean, battles are not fought in, in a minute. This at least was a, an hour-long or more affair that we noticed that your arms are shaky and we hold them up. And as long as, and to the degree we hold these up, the battle on the ground that Luke is leading, slash Joshua, goes well. But if we slack off with this, and he gets tired, which everyone gets tired, those arms fall, people are dying, the battle isn't working. It's the only time in scripture we see something like this. It's all dependent just on the posture of your arms. Give him a hand. Thank you very much. You know, I read a study recently that um, looked at 3,000 nurses, all who had breast cancer. And the study concluded that if you have breast cancer in this selection group of 3,000 nurses, you're four times less likely to die if you have close friends in your life. Those who self-reported that they don't have a lot of close friends, multiple close friends, were four times more likely to die. There was another uh, experiment. Uh, a psychology professor marched all of his students at a university out at the base of a very large hill and had them all look up the hill. And he made special tab and notice to the, the people who were grouped in friend groups. And he asked them to estimate how steep that hill was. The people who were standing next to close friends consistently estimated the grade of the hill as not very steep. Those who were standing alone consistently estimated that grade as incredibly steep. So it would appear that when we have friends in our lives, people who can hold our arms up, people who really know us, we look at obstacles very differently. And physiologically, biochemically, we can even beat cancer. And yet, a study came out in 2018 that said 56% of Americans self-report, this is a study out of UCLA, that they do not have one person in their life who really 
knows them well. That's incredible. That means the majority of our country is lonely and is suffering because they just don't have people who they feel that they can turn to, who really get them, who can speak into their life. That is an incredible argument for why you should be invested, truly invested in a local church. The body of Christ is the hope of the world, and in part because only when the gospel is present, the good news that Jesus loved you so much, he sees you to the bottom, he loves you to the top, when that is present, we can accept each other, really know each other with all the flaws, all the warts, and really love each other and really feel connected in a way that 56% of America, probably more, if we're all being honest, just doesn't feel. So do you have people in your life that really get you, that know you? That's what we're going to talk about in the brief time that we have. And so if you're taking notes, the first, oops, the first uh, slide here, the first point is failure of autonomy starts by saying, I'll do it myself. I'll do it by myself, all by myself. This is really what Moses engaged in as a young man. He looked at the suffering of his fellow Israelites, and he said, I'm going to do this all by myself. And in anger, he murders a guy. He buries the body. He tries to cover it up. And then in arrogance, he comes out the next day, kind of expecting a big gratitude prayed by, by these enslaved people that he's blood rel relation with. And they say, who, who are you? What are you going to kill us to? Who made you our judge? Didn't go so well. And so he becomes a wanted man. He's put on the Egyptian most wanted top 10 list. And, and he has to run from the palace that he grew up in. And he finds himself as a humble shepherd until he has an encounter with God that changes everything. It's as if God allows him to fail forward. And, and now as we pick up the story, he's actually done the thing his younger version of himself always wanted to do, be instrumental in freeing people, setting them free. And now he's leading a group of people and there's another battle. Somebody attacks this group of men, women, and children. A very, very aggressive local gang, basically, are trying to just wipe them off the map. Now, young Moses would totally have said, I'll do it myself, because that was his pattern, but that's not what he does. So let's talk about you for a second. Are you the type of man, the type of woman, who consistently, if you, if you were really being watched, says, I'll do it myself? I don't need Joshua. I don't need her. The dude, her. I don't need Aaron. I'll do it myself. Or are you the type of person who has learned how to fail forward into a lifestyle of delegation and dependence? Delegation and dependence. My prayer is, by the end of this message, we will all be closer to learning how to fail forward out of this autonomous way of thinking. It's just me. I'm a one-woman show, a one-man show into a very natural tendency to delegate, to bring other people in, to empower, and to depend on God. How do we do that? Well, the first lesson I think that we can take from, from this snapshot in his life, in Moses' life and story, is to keep good friends close. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses has ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. What's interesting is there is no invitation. The text doesn't tell us how Moses came to find himself surrounded with two good friends that were close enough to notice his hands falling. But he did invite them. How's that going for you? Do you invite people all the way up the hill in life? 
Because think about it, geographically speaking, if the battle depends on him doing this, and he kept Aaron and her at the base of the hill, which would have been appropriate, I suppose, would they notice those first little tremors? You know, it seems to me arms never fall like this, or rarely, right, in life, metaphorically speaking. I mean, if this is a sign of dependence on God, of surrender to God's will in our life, of obedience to God, we usually don't do this just overnight with no warning. It seems to me most people do this. It's by increments, right? And before you know it, they're here. When anything happens slowly, we don't notice it, do we? Not unless we're close. This is a a real call to proximity. Do you have people who are close enough to you that would even notice when your arms are failing? Or another way to put it, if you hold everyone else at arm's length, maybe they won't be close enough to see when your arms fall. I had a dear friend of mine. He's still probably one of my best friends. And we lived across the street from each other in South Minneapolis. And every week, I would hang out with this guy, and I would say, come on, we grew up together. Come to my men's group. He went to a different church. That's healthy for pastors to have friends sometimes who don't go to their church. And he's like, you know what's wrong with your men's group? Mike, it's 6 a.m. That's what's wrong with it. <laughs> so, like, no, I'm never going to your men's group. I was like, you're not in a men's group. You're not in a small group. Come on. Like, how, how do you do life without people who you see at least every seven days who, like, regularly speak in your life? He's like, well, I see you. I was like, yeah, yeah. And we play video games and hang out and eat, like, our body weight and tortilla chips. But, like, that's not quite the same as what we do in men's group. In men's group, we, we go around and we share one good thing that happened this week and one hard thing that we're struggling and one good thing. And then the dude on your right listens to all that because guys are simple and we can only like, listen to one person talk and, and repeat just one person's story back and it has to be immediate. And then we pray for that guy. And he's like, yeah, I don't think so. But I kept inviting and I kept inviting and I kept inviting. And then he went through a very, very painful season in his marriage. And so he came. Sometimes when our arms start to fall, we get the principle and we call people all the way up the hill. And so he started to come. And these guys instantly just kind of surrounded him with support and encouragement. He would go on to have a very painful divorce that he didn't want. And I watched my friend get so vulnerable. A few years later, his nine-year-old son was diagnosed with leukemia. Something a parent would just have in a nightmare, right? And I watched as this weekly men's group without even thinking on it, said, what can we do to help? In fact, no, I'm not even going to ask. This is what we're going to do to help. They pitched in and bought him a refrigerator when his went out. They prayed. They, they took turns. They keep serving and loving him. And sometimes I think to myself, what if he just would not have come? How do people survive things like that without friends really close? You're an American, so you probably don't have what he has. People who really know you, love you, and speak into you because our drug of choice is distraction and autonomy. I'm going to do what I want, when I want. If I feel like going to church, I'll go. If I feel like going to group, I'll go. I don't want 
people to really ask me how I'm doing because I might be embarrassed to tell them. And that's normal in our culture. But do you know what else is normal? 56% of people saying I'm miserable because I don't have people who really know me. I'll be honest, guys. I just don't know how I could function without a weekly rhythm of people who speak into my life. Now, does it have to be an early morning women's group or men's group or couples group? No. There are plenty of people who have found how to do this, found how to keep friends close without a technical church small group. But part of our job at Mercy Road is to make this easier for you. If you don't have that community, what would it actually cost you to show up on Monday night, sit around a table like this, enjoy a meal, watch a short video, and just talk? Maybe the better question is, what would it cost you not to do that? Secondly, so we keep friends close, but it doesn't stop there, my friends. You can have friends close, but if you don't give them armpit access, it's not going to work. What do I mean by armpit access? Well, you saw the visual. What, what kind of deodorant do you have, Ari? It, it was delightful. <laughs> the point is, had he not been wearing that, maybe I catch him later in the day, you know, gets real passionate up here, starts singing, that might not have been so delightful. Sometimes in Christian community and Christian friendships, you're going to have a nose, your nose, in someone else's armpit. And, and that's uncomfortable for both parties, if you really think about it. Like, you don't really want to be the person with someone else's face in the, in the armpit. And they really probably don't want to have their face in your armpit. But here's the deal. Somebody's face has to be there because your arms are going to fall. Your dependence, your continual dependence on God for his power to work through you, to lead you into the plans that he has for you, to make you the man or the woman that he wants you to be, it all depends on a posture of dependence. And you can't hold that without other people holding you. So have you given people armpit access? I mean, this is really hard, especially for introverts. Like, you are squirming if you're an introvert. You're like, oh, beyond the armpit references, I just can't imagine actually saying to someone, hey, if there's ever something that you need to talk to me about, I give you permission in advance to just speak into my life. Because we're, we're Midwesterners, right? I mean, I lived on the coast for a few years. When we lived in L.A., I was, like, shocked at how people talk to each other and, and how they drive. They cut each other off, and they're super direct. And I'm just this, like, Minnesota nice guy. Well, if you want to merge, we could take turns. And they're like, Argh. we don't like conflict, by and large. We really don't. We don't like saying, hey, that thing, that offended me. Or, do you know what? I just want to be more like Jesus, so I'm giving you advance permission to, to just kind of point out when I'm not being Christ-like. And we don't like, without giving advance permission, to just go to someone and be like, you just, dude, I just kind of notice you do this thing, or you're just really negative lately, or is that really good for you, or wow, the way you're talking about this other person, I get it, they're a pill, but... Or, or, man, if I'm being honest, like, all you do is complain lately, and I just, I don't want that for you. I don't think God wants it. Can we talk about that? Or, man, you, you're just drinking a lot more than you used to. Is, like, everything okay? Or, like, it seems like you're stress eating all the time. Like, do you, 
we don't like having those conversations. We don't like bringing it up. We don't like it when other people bring it up. And yet, here's the thing. If nobody gets up in your armpit, your arms are going to fail. You're going to stop depending on God, and you're going to start depending on yourself, and you will be predictably headed towards a failure. Moses looked this way, and he looked that way. He saw an injustice. He had a good intention, good motive. He wanted to stop the injustice, but he had no one around him. He took matters into his own hands, and he was not depending on God's power. He was depending on Moses' power. He kills a guy. He makes a huge mess of his life. Now he's on the run. The very thing he wanted to do, he couldn't be further from doing. Is it possible that if you don't make some good friends or reunite some old friendships or get people close to you and then give them literal armpit access, you're headed towards an arm drop moment that could really have ripple effects throughout everyone you care for and love? Is it possible that the thing you want most in life is not going to happen because no one's holding your arm and no one is holding your arm because no one was given advanced permission? I mean, I remember in the military, the thing you, you could never do was like, you know, physically touch a drill sergeant or a superior office officer. And, you know, in the ancient world, it's not that different. Moses is the leader, and yet he doesn't ask for help. At no point in this narrative is he saying, hey, guys, my arms are tired. Come, come, come on. But they do that. They just bring a big boulder, and that's hard work. Have you ever rolled a boulder, <laughs> like big enough to sit on or carried it? I mean, it was some heavy lifting, and they just initiated it. They saw the need, and they just initiated it, and then they touched him, and they lifted his arms, and the military execution was successful because the, the prayerful intervention, the dependence, was upheld. Who have you given armpit access? If no one is coming to your mind right now, do you really want to live like that? Do you really want to take that risk? It's not actually that hard. In fact, if the person you want to give armpit access heard this message, one thing you could do is buy a new stick of deodorant. Don't give them a used one. And you just, you're just like, hey, bro, I give you armpit access. And they'll kind of know what you're talking about. If they have not watched this message, don't do that. They'll think you're crazy, okay? <laughs> what else can we learn from Moses? Wise delegation and an unbroken dependence on God, those are the two things that win battles. What are you fighting? What are you going through right now? Maybe it's a medical thing. Maybe it's a mental health thing. Maybe it's a relationship thing. Maybe it's a struggle around a certain fear. Maybe it's doubts. Is God real? Does he really love me? Maybe you're watching a kid who you really love, your child, make some decisions that you really wish they wouldn't make, and you're like, wow. What are you fighting? What are you struggling with? What battle are you going through? Everyone's going through a battle. Everybody is going through a battle, and if you're not, you just wait five minutes, and you'll go through one. But when you are fighting a battle, are you the type of person who has learned how to delegate wisely and to depend on God 
You know, I am the right age where people often mistake me for being technologically in tune, you know, like being techie. Because there's two categories. A digital native is someone who can't, like was born with an IP address, right? They just can't remember not having a smartphone surgically attached to their palm. They can just figure anything out. For the most part, a digital native, right? A digital immigrant is someone who grew up in that time where like phones were like screwed onto walls and they had cords and you couldn't walk that far and, and even they used to have these little diary things. And, and you know, you like couldn't just look anything up. Like if you're like, who is that guy, the catcher for the twins? Gosh, I guess I'll never ever know. Like, you know, now, 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 now you just have like a digital slave named Alexa. You're like, hey, who's that catcher for the twins? She's like, I'm sorry, is it this one? Yep, you got it, all right. So people think that I know what I'm doing with tech stuff because I help start a nonprofit that creates videos and like I'm just the right age where they think that, but I don't. Now, here's an interesting dilemma that comes up when people think that I'm techie, more and more techie than I am. I could just pretend and hope that they don't see that I'm actually kind of lost in a lot of tech issues and I just really am not that intuitive but eventually they'll kind of figure that out. Or I could ask for help. The funny thing is, is when I ask people for help or just, hey, talk to me like I'm four and walk me through that, I learn how to do certain things. But see, that requires a delegation mindset. Are you the type of person, and I'm not talking about shoving your responsibility onto somebody else's plate, but are you the type of person who is grown wise enough yet to, to say, I don't really know what I'm doing in this area of life, but I'm sure there probably are some people. And are you wise enough yet to say, God, I have a need. I don't know how to do X. I don't know how to quit X. I don't know how to start X. I don't know how to think about X. Lord, would you put somebody in my life to help me fight this battle? Not everybody's a military commander. I know I sure am not. I was a chaplain in the military, but I got a very good front row seat at how military commanders think. Joshua was wired up by God to lead troops into battle, but Moses was not. But can you see the tension that could have come up in Moses' mind? He was raised in, in the house of an Egyptian prince, a king. He was a prince in Egypt, so that probably means he had military training. He was certainly trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The text suggests he kills a dude with his bare hands, who is a trained guard who had a weapon. He's no stranger to the military, and yet, when, when his own people are attacked, he looks to a younger man who's wired up to a, do a job that he could probably do, but he just knows intuitively, for this battle, it's Joshua's fight, and I'm, I'm gonna provide the airstrike, right? with dependence on God. That's hard for us, isn't it? For some of you, it's really hard. It's usually hard at the stuff you're kind of good at and you wish you were a little better at. You just don't want to admit it. I've, I've shared this before, but like, I'm kind of good at handyman stuff, which means I leave a constant wake of kind of good projects in my house. And like my wife and I, this is like hard this is what we fight about. She's, we were just talking about, let's get a backsplash. And she's like, yeah. We would have Katie Boyce from church do the actual caulking because 
Remember when you put a backsplash in the last house, you did like 10 times more stuff than you needed to on there, and it looked kind of bad, and I was like, it looked really good, I thought, you know? And, and, and we go back and forth, and so like my temptation in certain areas that I just really wish I was better at, I wish I was wired up to be like Mike Weck, who's like a general contractor, or Tom, or you guys are like artists with woodwork, or Terry, but I kind of am terrible at it. And if you want an ugly deck, get me to build your deck, deck, right? You know, like if you want like a crooked window, get me to put in your window, right? But I wish I was better. So then that moment comes, when I'm in the fight, am I going to be humble enough, self-aware enough, God-dependent enough to say, I need a Joshua. Even though I have military training, I was, I'm just not that good at fighting that type of battle. And maybe my role in this fight is to simply just surrender to God. The international symbol of surrender is this. In any language, if someone sticks a gun in your face, you're like, hey, hey. When we do this in worship, I know that makes some of you former Catholics and high church Lutherans really nervous. What are we doing? We're just reminding our own hearts with the posture of our body, like, God, I need you. Every hour I need you and everything I need you. <laughs> On my own, I, I do foolish things. I make it all about me and not about others. I need you and I need others to help me remind my own heart that I need you. When I was a little kid growing up Catholic and Lutheran, we went to our first kind of church that has worship like this, and I remember asking my dad, why doesn't the, the priest call on the people with questions? Because <laughs> I really thought they, were, they like had a question in the middle of the worship service and the music because I'd never seen anyone raise their hands. Some of you are a little too Midwestern to do that. That just makes you nervous. You just, you're like holding the baby, right? Just do, just do a little one, just a little one. But however you do it, the point is, from this text, if you don't learn how to delegate and depend on God, the battle's not going to go so well. The battle is not going to go so well. Later on in Moses' life, after this battle was done, he faced another battle, and it was a battle of burnout. And we read in, in chapter uh, 17 and, or 18, Moses' father-in-law gives him a talking. He says, what you're doing, Moses, it's not so good. You and these people who have come to you will only wear yourselves out. What was Moses doing? He was adjudicating grievances between the people. It's the first model we have for the judicial system. He was acting as a judge. He's like, okay, you're in a fight about this. Your husband put in some backsplash that's really ugly, and you're upset about that. I'm going to decide the punishment for that, right? He was doing that, but the lines were too long. And so his father-in-law says, the work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Has anyone ever told you the work is too heavy for you? You cannot handle it alone. If they haven't, I'm saying it to you now. There is an area in your life that you're trying to do on your own. Statistically, that's just probably true. And it's too heavy for you. And you need to ask God to bring in some people who can help you lift that. If you don't know how to start with that, talk to any staff member, any person on our, our board, any volunteer here. We would love to begin that process just by simply praying for you that God would bring the right people and by referring people to you. And I want to say something that might offend our board, so they're my bosses, so I've got to be careful. But if this church 
proves over a period of time too difficult to find close friends who you can give armpit access to, who can hold your posture of dependence up. If you're not able to connect and we're failing you in that regard, not making it easier for you, go find another church who can help you. Because God loves you so much that it matters infinitely more what church home you have Than, than, than who you invite up that hill, who you invite up the hill and who you give access to and who's holding your arms. It's critical in life and you have to find them and God has people in mind for you, but you have to be willing. A Barna research study said average church attendance has fallen by 25% in the last 15 years. And so now people who say they go to church regularly actually go 1.4 times a month. We got into an interesting conversation the other day at a board meeting. We said, so what is like the number that one should physically attend church? And that would be actually admitting, no, I'm trying to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm trying to have enough consistency where I see other people so that they would even notice my arms failing if they start to fail. And I'm trying to give them armpit access. Because, you know, I mean, armpits are personal things. And failing arms are nuanced. It's hard to tell. And if you just don't show up, it's pretty much the equivalent of not inviting the hill. Now, I'm not shaming anybody. And let me be really clear. There's a lot of people, like my dad growing up, couldn't go to church very often. He was a cop. He worked all these different shifts. And people have cabins and other things. And a lot, we have a much larger audience who watches online than in person. And you don't get to heaven by going to church a certain amount of times. But if you were on a sports team and you showed up 25% of the time, you think your coach would be like, guess who's going to be the starter? You. <laughs> He'd be like, wow. Do you even have a jersey? <laughs> if you registered for an expensive class in college and you showed up 50% of the time, there's a big letter for that. <laughs> you fail, right? It's not about coming to church. It's about knowing other people well and letting them know you well. And in an age where there's an app for literally everything, let me promise you something. There will never be an app that will replace face-to-face -face human interaction because God already made that app and it's called face-to-face -face human <laughs> interaction. I'd like to make sure that whatever we preach on, we always bring it back to Jesus. So if we stopped here, it'd be a nice motivational talk about Moses. That's great. All these principles matter. But here's the most important thing. The thing that you needed most, and I needed most, which is to be made right with God, has been delegated because we couldn't do it. God in his wisdom paid the bill, paid the cost, died in our place so we could be made whole and right with him again. The relationship is restored. And to the degree we depend on that delegated work, that delegation, we live as people who are remarkably free. We're free because nothing we've ever done in the past can condemn us. Nothing we will do in the future will condemn us. We're forgiven in the eyes of the one who matters most, our creator. And now we live with a constant empowerment by his spirit, access to be filled up with his spirit to continue to ever so imperfectly fail forward.
in the work he has given us. The question is, the one who held his arms out perfectly, consistently on the cross, let his arms be nailed to the cross, is calling you and me to be arm bearers for other people and to lift, have our arms lifted. Will we answer that call? Let's pray. Uh, we do have communion in the back in the last uh, set. If we want to do that, we can uh, partake in that as families or individuals. You're welcome to do that. A quick word on signature dish cook-off. It's going to be awesome and epic. And all this grace talk up here, we're going we're to pause all that. We're going to get very competitive. But for all those who don't win, we still love you. God still loves you, okay? All right, gracious God, thank you for this church. All joking aside, I, I do thank you that your arms were stretched out in dependence. The son let his hands be nailed in a perfect outstretched posture, perfectly depending on the father. Help us to live lives like that. When our arms are failing, would you rise people up who notice and don't even need to ask permission because we've given the permission in advance. For anyone who hears this and identifies with that 56% of lonely people and just feels stressed out because they don't know how to have those type of friends, would you calm them like a mother comforts a child? Would you remind them that even if any nobody stood up to, to bear their arms, you would actually bear you teach us as a church to make it easier and not harder for people to go in deep Christian friendship to support each other cheerfully. Lastly, Lord, we just ask your Holy Spirit to intercede on all of our behalves. Would you pray for what we would pray for? Would you ask for our lives what we would actually ask if we had your perfect perspective? Would you help us to fail forward in Jesus?